You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit harvestbrampton.ca. Amen, amen. Well, welcome to our last service here at uh, William Gates School. You can open up your Bibles to Second Peter or First Peter chapter 2. The ushers will come up and down the aisle with copies of uh, God's Word right now. What I'd like to ask you to do is just to take your fingers and just kind of weave them together just like that, okay? And then fold them over like this. Here is the church. Here is its steeple. Open the doors. And here's all the people. Now, nursery rhymes aren't always the best place to go for theological instruction, for defining an an accurate ecclesiology. A nursery rhyme is not uh, the first place where where we should really be looking. In fact, this nursery rhyme uh, highlights sort of a, a common misconception about the church, that the church is the building. The church is not the building. It's the people inside the building that are the church. It's not that the people are in a church, but the people are a church. The people are the church. And so uh, to, to sort of change that rhyme again, let's, let's link our, our hands. Jameson, help me uh, with this. So here is the church. The church is the people. It meets in a building, and the building has a steeple. Okay, so that's the, the new theologically accurate uh, nursery rhyme. And loved ones, for the last eight or nine years, we have been meeting in this building and we started at a prayer meeting in a house and we had meetings in a conference room in a a hotel and we're getting ready now to move into a a new building uh, next week. Now, for the past eight or nine years, we've had a great advantage as it relates to as it relates to having an understanding, a proper theological understanding of what the church is. We, we've never confused church with building because we've never had a building. We knew we we're meeting in a school. This is a school, but the church is, is, is sitting right here. But we, we are as exciting as everything that is happening in the life of our church right now, we need to be keenly aware that we are in danger of having that nursery rhyme misconception of what the church actually is. See, it's not about the building, it's about the people in the building. And loved ones, ultimately, it's not just that it's not about the building, it's about the people in the building. Really, it's not about the people in the building, it's about God at work in those people. And so if we're to define what church is, it's not the building, it's not the people, it's God at work in the people who may happen to meet inside a building. And so as we head into this new season as a church, we're we're going to be challenged with, with, with being reminded about who we are. Our identity is not defined by our address. And that building does not determine who we are as a church. No, no. Our identity in Christ is what determines that. And our ministry is not determined or somehow better because now we are meeting in a building. No, our ministry comes through Jesus Christ. And, and 
in moving into a permanent facility, there's, there's an inherent sense of security that comes along with that, isn't there? There's, I mean, we have a mortgage, we're not renters, and there's bricks and mortars, and there's an asset that's there, and it, it brings this sense of security. But loved ones, our, our sense of where we're trusting and where our security comes from can't come from the building. It must come through Jesus Christ. So in 1 Peter chapter 2, we're going to be reminded, and I hope we're going to be protected from incorrect and unhelpful ways of thinking about what the church is. As we were in the process of, of praying about purchasing this facility, uh, one of our elders, Dennis Baggett, made reference to this passage in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. I'd like to read it to you. I'm going to read verses 4 through verse 6. It says, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame." Let's pray that, that God would help us to understand and apply his word right now. And so, Heavenly Father, we come by your spirit. And we come in the name of your son for the last time uh, in this building, Lord, to open up your word. And God, as it's been so often prayed, Lord, we want you to speak. God, when it comes to the church, it's, it's not the building, it's not even the people, it's God at work in the people. And God, it's, it's true with preaching. It's not about the preacher. It's about God speaking through the preacher, through his word. And so, Lord, we pray that your voice would be heard and that you would speak. And so, Lord, we ask for you, by your spirit, to, to be with my mouth as I communicate and be with every ear and every heart that hears your message this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. So as we come to him, you see, it's not about just coming to a building, but when we come to church, we are coming to him. And that's the, the phrase that's used right there in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. As you come to him. And today from God's word, we're going to see three things that will happen if we truly get our eyes off of the building and have a proper understanding of what the church is and how it functions, then these three, these three things will happen. The first one is this. As we come to him, our identity is established. As we come to Jesus, our identity is established. You see, we are able to come to him because he came to us. Jesus is God and he came down as God in flesh, the eternal son of the father. He came to us and Jesus then invited us to come to him. And so it all starts with coming to him. That's where we find our identity. It's all wrapped up in who Jesus is. Jesus never stopped telling people to, to come to him. He said this in John chapter, uh, John chapter 6. He said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Inside every single human hole, heart, there is, a, there is a hole there. There is a hunger. There is a longing, a desire that, that longs to be satisfied. And, and Jesus said, I'm it. I will give you something so that you will never hunger again. I will ultimately satisfy every longing and desire of your heart. 
He said in John chapter 7, verse 37 and 38, he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus says we're, we're hungry and so we should come to him. He says that we're thirsty, we're longing for, for, for fresh water, for, 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 our, for, for God to, to strengthen us and to help us. And Jesus says, if you are thirsting, then come to me. And then I love this in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So Jesus comes and he says, come to me and, I'll, I'll, and you won't hunger anymore and you won't thirst anymore. And then he says, come to me if you're weary and if you're heavy laden. You see, because we all have this hunger and thirst in our heart, we can exhaust ourselves trying to fill it trying to fill it with success or trying to fill it with possessions or trying to fill it with a certain relationship and all of those things, whether we get them or whether we don't get them, we all end up completely spent and exhausted and weary and burdened and heavy laden. And Jesus looks at all of us as we limp along in life trying to find meaning and significance to fulfill the hunger and the thirst. And Jesus says, come to me and I will give you Rest. I will give you a new identity. I will give you what you are truly longing for. Then Peter describes him. He says, as you come to him, he says, he's a living stone. He's a living stone. Peter's name meant rock. Uh, so Peter talks a lot about rocks in his own writing. And he talks about Jesus as being a living stone. And he's about to use a big uh, architectural analogy. But I think he didn't want to... In, in using the analogy, he didn't want to reduce Jesus to an inanimate object. And so he calls him a living, he's a living savior. He, he's, he's the living Christ. And so he calls him a living stone. But then it says, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Jesus' identity was not determined by popular opinion. A bunch of people didn't have a vote to decide who Jesus was. Uh, the Sanhedrin made their decision. Herod and Pilate made their decision. The crowds made their decision about this is who Jesus is. We're rejecting him. But in the sight of God, even though he was rejected by men, he was chosen and precious. Jesus' identity was de determined by the one who gets the last say. And that's God the Father. But then what, what's described in verse 5 is absolutely incredible. Verse 5 says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up to a spiritual house. Do you see what's happening there? Our identity is defined by who Jesus is. We are living stones because Jesus is the living stone. And as we think about all of our identity and what it means to be a Christian, everything about being a Christian is all because of our whole identity is wrapped up in what New Testament authors always say about being in Christ or in Him. And so we are living stones because Jesus is the living stone. We are adopted as sons and daughters of God. Why? Because Jesus is the Son of God. We find our identity completely in who he is. So remember this, though, remember this, and this is really important for the people that Peter was writing to who were being persecuted, and this is important for us in our day today. As we think about our identity, we need to remember that we're a living stone. Jesus 
is the ultimate living stone. Jesus was rejected by men. And so we should not be surprised if we experience the same. If that's what Jesus' identity is and he was rejected by men, then we can expect that our message and our way of life and who we are will be rejected by the world around us. So we need to remember that and we need to count the cost. But we also need to remember what's also said about Jesus. In God's sight, Jesus is chosen and precious. And if you are here today and you are in Christ, trusting him for the forgiveness of your sins, then you yourself are chosen and precious in God's sight. That is your identity. It doesn't matter how many people are upset with you. It doesn't matter what people say about you. It doesn't matter if the world rejects you. God has chosen you and called you his precious and treasured possession. This is how our identity is to be established. But our identity is not just an individualized personal identity. It says you yourselves, do you see that? Plural, you yourselves. And that we are being built together into this spiritual house. It's not just simply about how we personally relate to God that defines our identity. No, our identity is also wrapped up in the fact that we're part of a community. That we are all stones who are being built together into this spiritual house. You know, one individual stone on its own is not that impressive. I mean, a a pile of stones or a heap of stones might catch your attention. But if those stones in the mind of an architect and the hands of a builder are crafted and molded and placed with a specific purpose and a reason to construct a beautiful building, I mean, that's something amazing. So we're not just our own individual living stones. That barely amounts to anything. But God, the master architect, the master builder is taking all of us as individual stones and we all have a purpose and a place in this beautiful temple that God is building. So our identity is established as we come to Jesus Christ. He's the one who determines it and defines it. Here's the second, the second thing we need to understand. Our ministry is accepted. Our ministry is accepted. When we come to Jesus, our ministry is accepted. Right there in the middle of verse five, after mentioning the idea of being a spiritual house, it says to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You see, all of us have a ministry. All of us, he says that all of us are priests. Sometimes we think about priests or just some sort of special class of people who are given special responsibilities. But the New Testament describes every single believer in Jesus Christ who has received the gift of eternal life and trusting him for the forgiveness of their sins. Every single Christian is a priest. That means that everyone in this room who is a follower of Christ has equal and immediate access to God. You do not need to go through any, if you are in Christ and you are seeking God through Christ, then you have the same access to God as the person beside you, as the person on this platform, as any other person on planet earth. And so we are all called to have, that's an incredible privilege, but loved ones, it's also an incredible responsibility you see, priests have a, have a job to do. They are called to make sacrifices. There is ministry that they are supposed to carry out. 
And one of the misconceptions about church is that we go to church to be ministered to by the other ministers. And that, and that there's, a, there's, a few group, there's, a, there's a small group of a few people who do the work of ministry and that you go to church and you receive sort of the, the professional ministry provided to you by your pastors or by your leaders. That's absolutely wrong. You do not simply go to church to be a consumer of someone else's ministry output. It's not just that there's one priest or a few priests and then all of the other uh, people. No, we are all priests and we all have a role in fulfilling what God has called us uh, to do. So we're not simply supposed to be a passive uh, recipients. We're supposed to be actively engaged in the work of ministry. And being a priest, it doesn't just simply define who we are, it defines what we do. That we are called upon to make these kinds of, of sacrifices. Now, uh, in the Old Testament, the, the work of priests was intensely a physical. Uh, if you were to, to look at really the day-to-day -day functions of of the priests in the Old Testament, if you were to remove them from the context of this beautiful, ornate tabernacle and then this gorgeously constructed temple and just simply look at what they did and their job description, you would think that they were working either in a, some sort of combination of a, a butcher shop and an incineration plant. They were continually slaughtering animals and then burning them until there was nothing left. And why, why, why did God's temple and why were God's special priests called to do something like that? Well, because in order to worship God, you needed to deal with sin. And sin is so offensive to God. And the wages of sin is death that the priests were regularly slaughtering and burning animals. So the worshipers were coming forward and saying, what is happening to this animal right now as its blood is being shed, as it is being, uh, as it is being lit on fire on the altar, what is happening to this animal is what I deserve to happen to me because of my sin. And so we now, as New Testament believers and New Testament priests, you don't have to put on your butcher's apron, we have received a sacrifice once and for all on our behalf. Jesus Christ suffered and died for us on the cross. And, and he made it possible for us to, to be acceptable to God, to be priests, because there's one sacrifice that has been made one physical sacrifice in time and space that had spiritual significance that Jesus Christ accomplished on our behalf. And so he identified with us as sinners deserving to die so that we could receive the identity of priests. And notice, notice how our whole identity is wrapped up in Christ. Christ is a living stone, we're living stones. Christ said, I'm the temple. Tear, tear me down in three days and I'll, re, and I'll, I'll rebuild it. And, and then Christ is our high priest. So we are called the high priest. Christ is the sacrifice. And we ourselves are called upon to make sacrifices. It's all tied up in Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has done. And so we are called upon to make spiritual sacrifices. Before Christ's once and for all physical and spiritual sacrifice for us, worship was, was, was very constrained. It was, it was constrained to one location had, in Jerusalem. 
It was constrained to one building, the temple. It was constrained to one group of people, the priesthood. It was constrained to one or two different ceremonies or rituals that needed to, that needed to happen in a certain way. But because Jesus Christ and his sacrifice fulfilled all of those things, spiritual sacrifices are now the duty of this new class of priests that all of us belong to. So our ministry is now accepted through Jesus Christ. So what are these spiritual sacrifices? Let me take you to a, a number of places right now in the New Testament that help us understand what a spiritual sacrifice actually is. Hebrews 13 is the first one. Through him then, let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So singing is a spiritual sacrifice. We've just been doing that. We've been praising the name of Jesus Christ. That is a spiritual sacrifice. The author of Hebrews goes on to say, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. To do good, to serve someone else and then to share someone who's in need, to share with them. So a spiritual sacrifice, you can jot these words down to get us started. It's singing, it's serving, doing good, and it's sharing. It's helping people out. Singing, serving, and sharing. So this, this is just a quick snapshot of, of what spiritual sacrifices are about. Let's go to one other place. Philippians chapter 4, verse 18. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Hebrews chapter 13 talked about, you know, someone is in need and so I'm going to share with them that's in need. And so sharing is a spiritual sacrifice. What's happening here in the way that the Philippians were, were sharing their resources with the apostle Paul, this is supporting they are supporting Paul in the ministry that he's doing. When you choose to give to your local church, when you choose to give to missions overseas, when you choose to, to support a ministry, you are making a spiritual sacrifice. It's like an offering that is pleasing uh, to God. And so it's, it's singing and it's sharing and it's, and it's, um, and, and it's, it's supporting. And then Paul here, now that he's received support, we... we he goes out and then shares the gospel with other people. And that's another spiritual sacrifice. The apostle Paul, as he's being supported, says, because of the grace given to me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles or the nations may be acceptable. Paul's work in evangelism and missions, sharing the gospel with people who do not know Jesus is a spiritual sacrifice. It's a priestly service. So this is what all of us are called upon to do. And then to sum it all up in Romans 12, the apostle Paul says, I appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So spiritual sacrifice is us and our entire lives, how we live 24-7. It's no longer constrained to a certain group of people at a particular location. Every moment of every day is an opportunity to make a spiritual sacrifice that is acceptable to God. But notice how it's acceptable. At the end of verse five, acceptable to God through 
Jesus Christ. It's acceptable through Jesus Christ. If you are a very wealthy person and very generous and you think that somehow God is, is, is obligated to let you into heaven or to bless your life because you give a lot of money away, then you need to understand that the only worship that is acceptable, the only sacrifice that is acceptable is, is worship that happens through Jesus Christ. You might say, hey, God, I, I, I've given a whole lot of money away. And God will simply say, how did you respond to the invitation that my son gave you? He said, come to me if you're hungry. Come to me if you're thirsty. Come to me if you're weary and heavy laden. It doesn't matter how generous you are. It doesn't matter how many good deeds you do, how many old ladies you walk across the street. It doesn't matter how effective you are in serving other people. If it's not done through Jesus Christ, there's only one way for God to accept worship, for worship to be acceptable, and that's if we come to the Father through Jesus Christ and his saving work for us on the cross. Our singing is acceptable only through Jesus Christ. You might think that, well, I don't really have a good voice, so I don't, I don't really sing that loud at church, or I don't really sing at all. Listen, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter about your voice. All that matters is that you are trusting in Jesus Christ, and that should cause you to sing all the louder. It doesn't matter what other people think. To, to sing your praise to God. Even if your voice is amazing, studio recording quality, that beautiful sound that is coming from your mouth is only acceptable through Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter how effective you are in sharing your faith. If you yourself are not personally trusting Jesus Christ, then that spiritual sacrifice is not acceptable. It doesn't matter how fruitful you are in ministry. It all happens through Jesus Christ. Because of his one sacrifice, we can make thousands upon thousands of spiritual sacrifices every moment of every day. But that worship is only acceptable through Jesus Christ. So when we come to him, our identity is established, our ministry is accepted, and then thirdly, our security is assured. Our security is assured. So we're trying to remind ourselves today about what the church actually is. It's not the building, it's the people in the building. And really it's not even the people in the building, it's God at work in the people in the building. And one of the dangers for us as we move into a building is to find a false sense of identity, a false sense of ministry, and a false sense of security related to that building. Verse six says, for it stands in scripture Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Verse 6 says, it stands in Scripture, and then it quotes a passage of the Bible. So where, where does this passage stand in Scripture? It's taken from Isaiah chapter 28. So just turn your Bibles to the book of Isaiah. It's kind of halfway through. If you hit the book of Psalms, uh, you want to head back towards the New Testament. Isaiah chapter uh, 28. Isaiah was, was ministering about uh, seven centuries before Jesus uh, walked uh, the earth, and 
Uh, He was ministering at a very affluent time, a very apathetic time where people were not pursuing the Lord with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Israel in their military and political power was beginning to wane. And this new empire, the Assyrian Empire, was, was rising to power and conquering all of these surrounding nations. And the people of Judah were finding a false sense of of security while all of this was happening. Look at chapter 28 of Isaiah, verse 14. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers, you rulers of this people in Jerusalem. So he's writing to the the kings, to, to the princes, to the rulers in the city of Jerusalem, in the tribe of Judah. Because you have said, we have made a covenant of death, and with Sheol we have made an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us. For we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken shelter. You see, the people of Judah at this time had sort of a superstitious trust in the fact that their city will never be destroyed because within their city is the temple of God. And God said that my presence will be there forever and ever. And and they were wrongfully interpreting that presence, thinking that they were off the hook, that hardship would never come their way. And so when the Assyrians came and wiped out the 10 northern tribes, and and the city was eventually uh, surrounded in the days of Hezekiah, they They saw this happen firsthand. It seemed like they were going to be destroyed, but God spared them. And you can read about that just 10 chapters later in Isaiah chapter 38 and 39. But they were trusting in the temple and not in the God of the temple. They had this idea that they were somehow immune from military threat. Little did they know that about a century and a half later, after Assyria... Assyria is now long gone. Babylon is now the new military leader. And they would come and they would tear down the walls of Jerusalem and they would completely flatten the temple as well. You see, what Isaiah was trying to warn the people at that time was, is you need to trust God, don't trust in his temple. You see, the temple was just a picture of something greater that was to come. And the temple was just a sign pointing to Jesus Christ who referred to himself as the temple that could be torn down and rebuilt again in three days. So in verse 15 of Isaiah 28, it says, we have made lies our refuge and in falsehood we have taken shelter. Not that the temple is lies or the temple is falsehood, but thinking that the temple will somehow protect you. That is a lie. That is false. And ultimately that would lead to their demise. So then Isaiah says, you're trusting in falsehood. You're trusting in lies. Then he says in verse 16, therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am the one who has laid, or in your Bible, there should be a footnote if you read the ESV, that in the Dead Sea Scrolls, it's written is laying, like in, in, in the process of laying, I am the one who has laid or is laying a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone and a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. 
God says, those stones of that temple right now that you're trusting in, that is pointing to an ultimate cornerstone. And if you trust in the God who is laying down that ultimate cornerstone, you have no reason to be afraid, to be in haste, to be worried, or to be disappointed. So let's go back now to 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 6. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And so through New Testament, Holy Spirit uh, lenses, the, the, the apostle Peter is now seeing that Isaiah chapter 28 is pointing forward to Jesus Christ, that he is that cornerstone. Notice how that same language, chosen and precious, that he used in verse four is repeated again in verse six. And that if we believe in him, we will not be put to shame. Some translations uh, use the phrase, will not be disappointed or, or not be a disgraced. You see, there is a greater temple and, and that temple, that temple's cornerstone is Jesus Christ. And there is an enemy that was greater than Assyria and Babylon. It was sin and death. And Christ was to build a temple that would provide ultimate security, not just in this life, but on into all of eternity. And Christ is described here, not just as a living stone now, but as a cornerstone. The, the, the cornerstone was the most important stone in construction at the time. From what I've read, from what I understand, the, the cornerstone was distinct from the foundation, but it was the first stone that was laid as the building was being constructed. The angles of the stone needed to be absolute, per, absolutely perfect. It needed to be completely square. And, and the angles and the, it, it, it being level and all of that needed to be absolutely perfect because that stone was going to set the standard, the measurement, the angle for the rest of the building. That stone needed to be perfect so that the rest of the building didn't get skewed on different angles and, and be unstable and eventually fall apart. And so loved ones, Jesus Christ is our cornerstone as a church. His, uh, his saving work for us on the cross is that, is that level and square and sure and perfect work that as we are building, as we are living stones, we need to make sure that everything we do in the building of the church is on the same level and on the same angle in providing, in, in, in building this structure. And all of us have an individual responsibility as we think about our lives, as we think about ourselves as a living stone. We have a responsibility to God and to one another to make sure that we are living lives that are pure, lives that are holy, lives that line up with the cornerstone not with our own good deeds because all our worship is only acceptable through Jesus Christ. So we need to be connected, lined up with Jesus and what he did for us on the cross. Jesus is our standard and our lives as living stones must line up with him. He's our cornerstone. He's where we find our identity. He's where we carry out our ministry and he is the source of our security. And so what we're gonna do right now is we're gonna bow our heads and pray together. And we're gonna pray for us as a church and also pray for us as an individual that, that we would not simply be um, 
um, casual and cavalier in our approach to the Christian life and not think that we have the, a, a new identity or, or ministry or security based in this new building, but that we would be thinking about how we relate to the cornerstone and is our life lining up with who Jesus is and what he has done. So let's bow our heads together. Lord, we love you and we thank you. We pray right now in the name of Jesus Christ, our precious cornerstone. We pray that you would move by your spirit right now, Lord. We pray that your kindness would lead us into repentance, God. Father, I pray that if there's anything in our lives, Lord, even if it's by the matter of just, just one or two degrees that is out of line with the gospel, that is out of line with who Jesus is and what he has come to do, Lord. God, I pray that we would walk in repentance. God, that we would confess our sin. And Lord, I pray that you would go ahead of us and be with us as a church, Lord, that we would be trusting in and relying on and building ourselves upon that ultimate cornerstone who laid down that ultimate sacrifice, who's the ultimate priest and the ultimate temple. Lord, we pray that we would rely afresh and anew, Lord, and that our church would never stray from the cornerstone, that we would never trust or hope or rely on anything other than Jesus Christ. Lord, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness, Lord. That's true now. May that be true until you return. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church or to contact us, please visit harvestbrampton.ca.